Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We uh, are going to continue our series in 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 9. So the story of the book of Samuel tells of the transition of the people of Israel, the old covenant people of God, from a, a time of uh, judges where the, the, the tribes of Israel were a kind of a loose coalition of families, of clans, uh, with no real central government, right? No really seat of power and authority. And God would raise up judges to kind of go on these circuits around the various tribes and, uh, and hear cases and make decisions and settle disputes and things like that. Sometimes to lead in a military, you know, like a fight against enemies or whatever. But there was no centralized government uh, in this period of time. And so Samuel tells the transition of Israel to a period of monarchy that is where the the, na- the the tribes are united as one nation under a centralized government uh, where a king has the authority uh, to lead God's people and God's design for the kingship is that he also appoints a prophet who hears the word of God and speaks the word of God to the king and then the king's responsibility is to lead the people according to God's word which if all goes according to design, is a pretty good plan. If the king is a righteous man who inclines his ear toward the Lord and trusts the prophet that God has appointed, things go well for the nation of Israel. And when you have a king in power who doesn't incline his ear to the Lord or who has his own ideas about what the nation should do, things generally will go badly for Israel. Well, last week we were in chapter 8 when the, the elders of Israel came to Samuel, the prophet and the judge, and demanded a king. Make us a king, they said, like all the nations around us. And just as a reminder, which I said last week, the desire for a king in itself was not bad. And in fact, God had always planned to provide a king for his people Israel. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he had promised uh, or predicted as much that there would come a king and he set out some requirements for the way that king ought to live and the kind of man he ought to be. So the fact of a king is not a bad thing and the desire of the people for that king is not necessarily a bad thing. However, their motives in asking for a king were less than godly, less than pure. In fact, Samuel saw them as wicked And he went to talk to God about it. And God said, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me as being king over them. So in the request for a king, the elders of Israel demonstrate a lack of trust in God, a lack of interest in his plans and purposes for the people, and really a kind of disregarding of Samuel and his ministry and authority, even though he is faithfully served the people for many years by this time. And so, nevertheless, God acquiesces to their request. He says, give them what they want. Although, he says, warn them what they're getting themselves into. 
And there's a whole stretch of verses in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, that tell all about the kind of things they can expect being under a king. Some of them are just normal things uh, that come along with a kingship, like a military draft. If you want a king to fight your battles, guess what? He's going to take your sons and make them his soldiers. And if you want to fight battles, well, he's going to need supplies. So he's going to take your daughters to, and, and make them into laborers to, to craft the materials that will be needed for all this wartime activity. And he's going to tax you. You're going to have to give the best of your things for his purposes to support this central government, right? So some of it is just the natural, you know, trappings of a monarchy. But then there's also implications of abuse, that this king will uh, demand more than he's owed and and take uh, from them more than they uh, want to give. And he, in fact, says in verse 17 that the relationship would be like you as his slaves, So it gives a very strong warning. If you want a king, this is what it's going to be like. And the people insist. And they said to Samuel, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like the nations. And so their desire to be like the pagan world around them and their lack of trust in God and Samuel leads them to this situation. So God says, give them what they want. And Samuel sends them all home. And so in chapter 9, we are all ready to meet this king, to meet the guy, the man who would be king. This is the first of three men who would fit that description in the book of Samuel. So we're going to meet Samuel, and it's a very strange, unexpected way that we meet Samuel, because you'd think after they've demanded a king and God said, okay, I'm going to give them what they want, then we're going to see some big, bold, powerful declaration or something like that. But what we get is a really kind of quirky, odd story in chapter 9 centering around some missing donkeys. And so I'm going to to read for you beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll just kind of stop along the way, and I'll share Uh, some observations and things that I see that might be instructive for us. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I don't think that means he had an unusually large head. I think it means he was about a head and shoulders taller than everybody else, right? In a crowd of people, you'd be able to point out Saul because he's taller than everyone, which contributes to his sort of physical impressiveness, right? This appearance of the strong, handsome, tall man. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So you can tell already the story's taking an interesting turn. I thought we were going to talk about a king being appointed, and here we are talking about Kish's donkeys. The donkeys of Kish were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but he did not find them. 
And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So hold on right there. So verses 3 and 4 tell us a little bit about this journey that Saul goes on. Saul and a servant of his take off to look for the lost donkeys of his father. And they go a long way. They travel the hillside of Ephraim, which is just the name of this region. And they travel at least through these three cities, Shalisha, however you say that, Sha'alim, and uh, the, the, the whole land of Benjamin, and they come to this, the land of Zuf, which is, incidentally, the region where Samuel, the prophet, lives. He lives in a town called Ramah, which is in this valley between two hills in the land of Zuf. Zuf is named after one of Samuel's ancestors. So they have incidentally come to the place where Samuel lives, and Saul goes, We're out of supplies. The journey has been long, about three days worth at this point. And my dad is probably no longer worrying about donkeys and now going, what has become of my son who's been gone so long? So Saul says, let's stop and go back lest my father be anxious about us. So look at verse 6. Here's how the servant replies. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. All right, so the servant is aware, hey, Samuel lives in Zuf. Maybe he can tell us where to look for the donkeys, right? Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For, for the bread in our sacks is gone and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. We have a little commentary in verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And so you really have this kind of interchangeable man of God, seer, and prophet, which all mean the same thing. God has appointed this man to play the special role of hearing messages from God and delivering them to his people. And so there, you could see obvious value in somebody wanting to go to see this man of God, this seer, and make, give him a little gift and ask him for help. Maybe you could give us some special inside information about whatever our various needs are or problem is, and maybe God, through this prophet, will help us to figure out what we need to do. And that was apparently a custom. And so they think, let's go talk to the prophet and ask him about the donkeys, Where can we go to find the donkeys? And so, verse 10, Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. 
So they went up to the city as they were entering the city. Uh, excuse me, they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So they're in Zuf. They've had the idea. The servant has had the idea. Why don't we go see the prophet Samuel? And Saul says, all right, fine. We'll give him this piece of, sh- this piece of silver and, and go see him. And they happen to find some young women who are out drawing water. And so they ask them, do you know where the prophet is? And they go, oh, yeah, he's just up the way. If you hurry, you can actually, you know, intercept him before he gets to the place where they're offering the sacrifices. Because the high place, remember, Ramah is in this valley, so they apparently would set up on this hilltop to, to worship and make their sacrifices. And Samuel, being both prophet and priest, is the one responsible for facilitating the sacrifices and leading people in the, the ritual worship there. And so they're waiting on him. They won't eat until he's come and offered the sacrifices, blessed the meat, and, uh, and shared the meal. So they uh, take the women's advice and head to the city, and indeed, they find him, uh, and they intercept him, and he's on his way toward them now. Now stop, please. Don't look ahead yet, if you haven't already. We're going to skip a couple of verses, which is kind of weird. We'll come back to them. But I want us to skip our eyes down to verse 18 just to continue the story, verses 15 through 17 are a little bit of an interruption, and we're going to hold on there. So bookmark it, don't look at it. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul and his servant find Samuel and they say, do you know where the seer is, or is the seer in his house today? So maybe they're not quite sure if this is Samuel or not, but that's their introduction. And Samuel says to them, I am him, I'm the prophet, and I'm about to go up and eat dinner, so come with me, we'll talk about what's on your mind tomorrow. As for the donkeys that you're looking for, don't worry about them, they've been found. I don't think Saul said anything about a donkey, so Samuel apparently knows something about the donkeys that Saul is looking for, Don't worry about them. They've been found. Set your mind at ease on the donkeys. And then he says this very curious thing to him in uh, verse 20. He says, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? Which means basically everything good in Israel is yours. It belongs to you. So like, why are you worried about donkeys? It's kind of the sense that you get from what Samuel is saying here. Why, why should you be concerned about a few runaway donkeys? Because everything in Israel is yours. Saul's like, I am just looking for donkeys. My dad's donkeys got lost. I'm from Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe of Israel. And like, my family's like not that big, even within Benjamin. So why would you say something like that to me? That like everything good in Israel is for me. Very strange. So Saul is confused understandably, at this point. That's an odd, that's not the response he was expecting. First of all, he gets this, okay, so apparently Samuel somehow already knows about the donkeys that I'm missing and that they've been found, got them taken care of. Um, 
And now he's saying something to me about everything good in Israel being for me. This is strange. I don't know what to make of that. Well, it's about to get even weirder. Look at verse 22. Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. So now he's placed him in the seat of honor at this sacrificial meal. He's put him at the head of the table. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. And by this point, Saul is probably going, what is going on? I'm a nobody from the tribe of Benjamin who's just wandering around looking for donkeys. I happened to have the idea, or my servant had the idea, to come talk to the prophet to ask him if he could help us find the donkeys. And now here I am, the, the, the guest of honor in a sacrificial dinner and being given the priest's portion of meat. That's what that means, that meat that was set aside, the leg and what was on it, that was how the priests would earn, would receive their living, their food, because they weren't farming and things like that. All they were doing was facilitating the worship of the people. So the people were supposed to give a portion of their meat to the priests. And so now Samuel has taken this set aside priestly portion of meat and given it to Saul. And so Saul's seating, sitting in the seat of honor and receiving the priestly portion of meat and being told that all that's good in Israel belongs to you. And this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense to him. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Look at verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And so now, Saul has been the guest of honor at this dinner and received the priestly portion of the meat. And now he's being told by Samuel, I need to have a word in private with you because God has a word for you. So for Saul, this is a very strange set of sequence of events. This is not what he expected when he went to the prophet to say, hey, can you help me find the donkeys? Let's jump back now to verse 15 where there was this interruption of the story and this will tell us what Samuel knows that Saul does not, that makes all of the weird things make a little bit more sense. Verse 15. Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him him to be prince over my people Israel. That word for prince just means the leader, the leader of the people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So Samuel has some inside information from God 
about Saul that Saul doesn't yet know. If you're just reading this passage in sequence as it comes, we become aware well before Saul does what's going on here, which is not the first time that the author of the book of Samuel has employed that strategy. Back in chapter 3, when uh, we read of the calling of Samuel as a prophet, the very same thing happened because we're told the Lord called to Samuel, but Samuel thought that it was Eli. And so Eli went, I mean, so Samuel went to Eli in the middle of the night and said, you called? And Eli said, no, I didn't go back to bed. And he did that three times before Eli had the presence of mind to go, this is the Lord calling you. So when you hear it again, say, speak, your servant is listening. So Samuel didn't know that it was the Lord that had been calling him, but we knew all along because the, the author told us that from the very beginning. So he employs a similar strategy here just in terms of telling his story, that lets us in on the secret before Saul has any idea. So I wanted us to not read it as we were going, just to feel a little bit of what Saul might have felt. Like, this is weird. This stuff doesn't make sense. Why are you saying this? Why are you seating me here? Why are you giving me this priestly portion? What is this message from God that you have for me? All this is very weird, all right? So now we have the context of what's going on here. And what's happening is God has chosen Saul to be king. And he's told his prophet, you are going to anoint him. That is a, 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 an act of a demonstration of God's choosing. So to say he's anointing him is to say you are the chosen one. God has chosen you to be king over Israel. And God's mercy and kindness and patience are on display in how he describes that to Samuel in verse 17, verse 18. I'm sorry, it is verse 16. I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. These are the same people that were bellyaching about Samuel's sons and their bad leadership and saying, we want to be like all the nations around us, so give us a king. This rebellious, selfish request for a king. And God still is patient and loving and merciful to his people. I've heard their cry I know they're distressed, they're afraid, I'm going to help them by appointing this man to be their king. So with the knowledge of verses 15 to 17, this whole chapter takes on a new significance, a different meaning. It's like you start looking back on the, the story and the history of what's happened and reinterpreting it and re-understanding what's going on here. Because it starts out just the story of a nobody from a small tribe in, in Israel who's looking for the lost donkeys of his father. But verse 15, verse 16 tells us what God is actually doing is sending Saul to Samuel. That's what has happened in this chapter. I, about this time tomorrow, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. If you think about even the timeline, Saul has been traveling for about three days before he arrives at Zuf, and they go and see the prophet. So it's on day two of Saul's journey that God talks to Samuel. He's already, things are already in motion. Saul's already on the way, as it were, to Samuel when God talks to Samuel and says, hey, tomorrow I'm going to send you a guy from Benjamin, and when you see him, you're going to anoint him as king of Israel. 
And so the whole story takes on this fresh significance as we see God putting things in motion, moving people, giving ideas, orchestrating events such that the effect is I've taken Saul and I've sent him to Samuel. Listen, he could have done this in a much simpler way. He could have said, hey, Saul, I've chosen you to be king. You need to go see the prophet Samuel who's going to anoint you. Or even more cryptic and mysterious than that, he could have just talked to Saul directly and said, Saul, I need you to go to the land of Zeph and see Samuel. He has a message for you. All right? So then Saul is very intentionally and purposefully now going to Zeph to find Samuel. I wonder what it is that God's told Samuel. But that's not what God does. That's not how God sends Saul to Samuel. How does he do it? Maybe sending a strong wind to blow open the pen where the donkeys were. Maybe by giving the donkeys an idea about how nice those open pastures look. And off they wander. Even providing for their safe return. No donkeys were harmed in the making of this story, right? So they've been found. Don't worry about them, Samuel tells them. So, but they don't know that yet. They haven't been found yet. So Kish has to have the idea, like, okay, we got to figure out a way to find the donkeys. I know, I'll send my son Saul to go looking for them. Take a servant with you. So they have to go, and they have to happen to wander a long way through these three cities in the land of Ephraim, and they, they need to run out of energy and resources. He said they're out of bread and things like that. So they need to run out of their provisions right at the time that they're arriving at the land of Zuf, where Samuel the prophet lives. And Saul needs to have the presence of mind at that point to go, we need to call this thing off and just head back home. And then the servant needs to remember, oh, no, wait, I think there's a prophet who lives here. Maybe he could help us find the donkeys. And then Saul's going to object, well, we don't really have anything to give him. Well, I don't know, let me, let me look. Hey, it turns out I have a little bit of silver that we could give to the prophet. So there had to be a piece of silver in the servant's bag in order to go and give it to him. Okay, well, I guess let's go find the servant. Meanwhile, there's a group of young women who just happened at this particular time of the day to be out at the well drawing water for themselves. And so as Saul and the servant approach, they see these women and they ask, hey, do you know where the prophet is? Absolutely, he's just up the road. Wow, the timing here is so remarkable. He's headed toward the place where they're making the sacrifices and going to have the meal together. If you hurry, you can catch him. All right, you can intercept him and meet with him. And so off they go and they they intercept Samuel, and here is Saul face to face with the prophet of God. No idea what's going on. He thinks we're talking about donkeys. God is doing something way bigger than that, way more intentional than that. He already took care of the donkeys. They got found and returned long ago. You've been wandering the hill country looking for donkeys that have already back home safe and sound. Don't worry about the donkeys. That's not really what you're here for. God is appointing Saul to be king. You are going to be the first king of Israel. There's never been a kingship in Israel, and this Saul will take the first shot at the kingship in Israel. God is working through the tiny, insignificant ordinary as they can be details of this story to bring about his 
purposes. His purposes for Saul, his purposes for his people, his purposes for the world. I read this story and I cannot escape the reality that God is always meticulously, intentionally working through the most ordinary things that you can imagine. God does everything on purpose. The things in your life that seem accidental that seem even strange, the things that you have a hard time making sense of. Why am I here? Why am I having this conversation? Why is this the the circumstance that I'm in? God is working. God sees every detail, and he moves people about and influences decisions, and, and he accomplishes his purposes. John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. Sometimes things are real obvious to us. Wow, God is really teaching me this lesson, or God is really opening this door and providing for me, or whatever. But sometimes we have no idea. And I would say more often than not, he is at work in ways we can't understand right now. You can't see right now. People always, when they're having hard times or going through pain and things like that, are always saying, like, I wonder what the lesson is that God wants me to learn from this. And I think more than lessons that he wants us to learn, God's just accomplishing his purposes in and through your hardships. Even the hard things and the painful things that we experience in life are not wasted. I think sometimes so much of what we face in a fallen world, in broken relationships and shattered hopes and dreams and disappointments, so much of what we face seems pointless. We can be be tempted to think what I'm experiencing is meaningless. But the God of 1 Samuel chapter 9 doesn't know meaningless. He doesn't know pointless circumstances or conversations or relationships. God will use everything in your life and around your life to accomplish his good purposes for you, for his glory, for his church, for the advance of the gospel, and for the ultimate establishing of his forever kingdom. God is always working in thousands of ways we can't see. And so the faith of a Christian leans on the meticulous, intentional providence of God and says, I trust him. I trust what he's doing. And he will bring about his desired result. Much is made in Christian circles about the the finding of God's will, the discerning of what God wants you to do. And, you know, I've said myself and I've heard others say in moments of of decision where there's maybe a fork in the road or we've got to go one way or the other. If God would just tell me what he wanted me to do, I would do it. And I think more often than not, that's not how God works. Hey, God 
God could write a message in the clouds to you. God could send an angel to you and say, here's what I want you to do. I'm not saying what God can or cannot do. But more often than not, that's not how God works. God works through a long string of seemingly inconsequential events and conversations and desires and provisions and open doors and closed doors to bring about his good purposes. I could think even if you think about the story of imprint, the fact that we're, that we're here as a church two years after we started uh, a public meeting together, it, the, the story of imprint is laced with God's intentional, meticulous providence in very ordinary things. I don't think there's a huge amount of things in the story of imprint that are spectacular. They're like, I cannot believe that God did that big thing. Most of how imprint got here and got going and the fact that we're here two years later and going, hey, look, we've been here two years are very ordinary things. I can tell you my own story of how our family ended up here. You know, Paul had this vision in the book of Acts. This, he had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and preach to us. And so he concluded from that, I think the Lord wants us to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. I didn't have anything like that with Baltimore. We were living in Houston, Texas, raising kids. I'm a worship pastor at a Bible church down there. I didn't have some epiphany like, God wants me in Baltimore to start a new church. And so let's do everything we can to make that happen. It, it was much more ordinary than that and a longer unfolding than that. I was working at the church, raising a, raising a family, uh, finishing up my degree in seminary. And so we get to graduation point and we start thinking, well, maybe, maybe I should start looking for a, you know, a senior pastor or a teaching pastor kind of position. So we start just by knocking on doors of, uh, figuratively speaking, knocking on doors of established churches that are looking for pastors. So I send out some resumes, have a few conversations with churches, nothing really materializes. There happens about that time to be an Acts 29 church planting conference held at a nearby church in Houston, and we thought, maybe we should go try that. So Lindsay and I and a couple friends went to this Acts 29 conference, and I think we kind of left that conference going, church planting, we should maybe think about that. And I remembered, hey, I've got a seminary friend who's planting a church. I wonder if I could pick his brain. And so I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine named Russell, who had four kids. At the time, I had four kids as well. And uh, he had planted a church. He was about a year, maybe two years into his journey. And so I just sat down with him and said, hey, man, I'm thinking about planting a church. Am I crazy? Should I be thinking about this? And he said, first of all, yes, you're crazy. Second of all, do it. Go. It's amazing. Like, you will not regret leading your family on this, like, kingdom-charging, missional endeavor. Like, whether it succeeds or not, go. You know, so I remember leaving that lunch going, yeah, yeah, maybe this is, maybe this is what we should do. So we start looking into church planting. And, well, if we're going to plant a church, where are we going to plant a church? I don't know. There's a lot of churches in Houston. Maybe I should plant somewhere else call the North American Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Missions Group. Hey, we want, like to plant a church. Where should we do it? They list a few cities. Baltimore is one of those cities. Well, Lindsay and I had been up here uh, in the Gaithersburg area for several conferences, worship conferences that we liked. Always thought, wow, it's such a beautiful area, very interesting. And so Baltimore, hey, that's a nice area of the country. Why don't we check that out? So I call somebody who works with church planting in Baltimore, and I say, hey, we're thinking about planting a church, thinking about moving to Baltimore. And he's like, come for a visit. So we come for a visit. We meet some other pastors and people that are doing ministry in the area. We see the city. We see all around the city. And we leave that trip going, 
I think we can see ourselves here. I think we could do ministry here. I don't necessarily, I'm no expert on church planting, but I think we could do this. Let's, let's give it a try. And so then we start the process of applying and going through assessments and all that. You get the green light on that, and then you have to raise all your money. Okay, so I have to find a salary somehow. And everything you read about fundraising says if you spend, if you treat fundraising like a full-time job, you shouldn't have any trouble within a year raising all of your funds. So we're like, oh, man, this might be a long time. We raise all our funds in six weeks. God's like, oh, you want to go to Baltimore? Here you go. 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 So within about three months from the time we went, we're going to Baltimore, we're ready to move. And so we move. And then it's like, okay, so where in Baltimore? Right? Baltimore's a pretty big place. There's all kinds of places we could end up. Well, where are there homes available? Where are the schools, you know, things that we could kind of live with? And what, what, what do we, where do we go? So we make a trip in like June or July of 2015, and we got three days to find a house. We made three offers. 3409 Northwind is the third offer we made. It's the one that finally took. So there we are, right? And then we moved there, and it's like, well, let's get our kids enrolled in school, and let's start meeting our neighbors, and maybe let's start having a home Bible study, and then like, hey, maybe let's talk to the school about renting space. And it's just this very ordinary, one step at a time unfolding of events. And here we stand, and I look two years back, and I look four years back, and I can see very clearly how God was putting pieces together and connecting dots and giving desires to me and to Lindsay and like even getting our kids, like when we told our kids, hey, we're thinking about moving to Baltimore. They were like, cool, I think it snows there. Let's do it, you know? <laughs> so like even all of these little pieces just start to fit into place. There's a house available, there's funds available, and here we are. And now there's a church that didn't used to exist that's meeting to worship God and hear his word and to observe baptism and the Lord's Supper and to disciple each other. And God just does what he's going to do in 10,000s of ways that you can't predict and you're usually not even aware of. That's how God works. And that's just my story about imprint. You each have your own about how you ended up where you are. You're sitting in a chair in the cafeteria of Seven Oaks Elementary School on March 31st, 2019, not by accident. God converged thousands of details for you to be where you are right now. And you could think back on your own life and journey and story and go, yeah, I think here's, here's the things that led to where I am or whatever is going on in your life. God is meticulously and intentionally at work to advance his purposes for your good and for his glory. So we see God's sovereign work in 1 Samuel 9 as he chooses Saul, sends Saul to the prophet Samuel, tells Samuel, here's the king, you're going to anoint him. Next week in chapter 10, we'll see the anointing, a private anointing of Saul and then a public proclamation where Saul is recognized uh, before the nation as the new king. But even the fact of kingship in Israel is no mere accident. It's no just response to the whim of the people. Although in the way it unfolded, that's, that's what precipitated this. The people got tired of Samuel's sons and their bad leadership, and Samuel's getting old, and they saw a need for new leadership, and they didn't trust God to provide it, and so they went, make us a king. 
So they ask this kind of selfish, demanding uh, request of Samuel, and God says, all right, if this is how it's going to go, we'll, we'll, we'll go with this. And so he appoints Saul to be the king. And that's no accident. God needs a king in place in Israel. That was his plan all along. His plan was always for there to be a king over Israel. And his plan was for the people of Israel to see after years and generations of attempts and failures for kings to rightly lead the people to be faithful to God. He needed the people of Israel to see we don't have what it takes. The kings that we see rising to the throne and and that are appointed to lead us aren't getting the job done. They're not faithfully representing us. They're not faithfully worshiping God and leading us to, to worship him. And so we have two examples in the book of Samuel of human kings who have some ups and some downs. Saul, we'll find, will start out pretty well, but he's gonna spiral into chaos and, and madness and end very badly. And as he's declining, David is going to be on the rise. We'll meet him in just a few chapters. And David is going to ascend to the throne, and he's going to be a great king, a good king, a man after God's own heart. But man, David is no saint. David has a whole list of his own problems and sins that, that, that wrap the nation in scandal and turmoil, and things will go south even in his leadership. And then after that, the story just gets worse and worse. As the kings succeed him, they're just failure after failure after failure. The nation will be divided and broken into two. And the kings that lead the northern nation will be utter failures, ungodly, wicked men every time. And all the while, we're supposed to look at this, the king, the failed kings of Israel, And look to the promise he's going to make to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he says, there will be a king who reigns on your throne forever. That's the king we're really waiting for. That's the king that all of this, all of the the anointing and the choosing and the appointing and proclamation and the, the kings of Israel and this whole thing, all of it is foreshadowing the coming king. All of it is pointing toward the king who will finally accomplish the purpose for which he's appointed. To faithfully represent God. To faithfully lead his people. To rightly worship God and lead them in the worship of God. And of course that king is none other than King Jesus. So when Jesus enters the scene a few hundred years after this, his people still reject him. He's not really welcomed as the king. But now he's crowned in glory and honor. He's crucified and raised and seated at the right hand of God. The book of Philippians tells us that he has been given the name that is above every name. That's King Jesus. And all of this is just setting the stage for his coming. And when he comes, he will deal with our sin. And he deals with our sin by taking it upon himself, by going to a cross in our place and enduring the wrath of God against our unrighteousness. 
And he becomes that once for all sacrifice whereby our sins are atoned and we're made right with God. And we don't have to keep sacrificing bulls and goats and and having these sacrificial meals and rituals because Christ paid the price for us all. When we trust in him and we turn from our sins, he welcomes us into his family. And he says, you're mine. But more than just welcoming us as sons and daughters in his family, he brands us as citizens of his kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. We represent King Jesus here in this earthly place and this earthly kingdom where we live. And all of this started with some runaway donkeys. This is how God works through thousands of mundane, ordinary details. He is accomplishing his purposes in your life for your good and for his glory.